Welcome to Sightseeing Japan, the podcast where we explore the land of Shinto. I'm Paul Bresson. And I'm Jason Neeling. And today our topic is temples and shrines. We're going to talk all about the history of temples and shrines in Japan, the history of the religions that temples and shrines belong to, and all that good stuff. How's it going, Paul? Good. How are you tonight? I'm doing fine. Thank you for asking. Have you been to a temple or a shrine before? Yeah, I've been to quite a few. Cool. How about you? I have been to uncountable <laughs> temples and shrines because, I mean, it's hard to visit Japan and not see temples and shrines. Even if you were trying to avoid them, you would just run into them all over the place. Do you know how many exactly there are? I don't think anybody knows exactly how many there are, but I do have general numbers. Oh, yeah? Well, what yeah. are they? So apparently there are an estimated 100,000 shrines and about 80,000 temples in Japan. And we're going to learn about why those are different things. They're they are not the same. Wow. That's almost uh, about one per thousand people in Japan. Is that right? For the shrines. Huh. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're everywhere. Like you'll see them on the street just walking around. Like all of a sudden you turn a corner and, oh, hey, there's a, there's a shrine right there. And you'll see people just like stopping to pray on the way to work and stuff. Yeah. Temples and shrines are really important part of Japanese culture and life. And yeah. uh, a lot of them are really beautiful too. Totally. And uh, very historical. Many of them being hundreds and hundreds of years old. Yeah. Yeah. The architecture is super old too and really cool to see. So let's get into a little bit of the religions behind them. Yeah, that's important to understand. So let's start with, uh, well, we'll start by saying that temples are Buddhist and shrines are Shinto, right? Yes, an important distinction. Yeah, and we'll say that over and over again because it's easy to mix them up, you know, until you get deep in there and kind of get all the all the differences. So let's start with Buddhism. What's... Buddhism, Paul. Well, Buddhism derives from the teaching of the Buddha, who lived, I believe, about 2,500 years ago in northern India. 2,500 years ago, so that would be around the 5th, 6th century BC, somewhere around there? That's correct. Um, so Buddhism, obviously, I mean, it's such an old religion. There are tons of different sects, just like, you know, Christianity has a ton of different uh, you know, it's split off and people have all sorts of different beliefs and they all still call themselves Christian. Same, same deal with Buddhism, right? Got a lot of different belief systems in a lot of different countries. I mean, Buddhism spread all over Asia. Yeah, by the time Buddhism makes it through Tibet and into China and eventually through Korea and into Japan, who knows how many times it's evolved, how many different sects it's been through for then. Um, it's really interesting to see the evolution of it. Yeah. So I'm going to compare to Christianity because I'm thinking that most people that listen probably have some familiarity with that. So in Christianity, even though you have all these different beliefs, there are still a few core beliefs, right? People believe in Christ. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of a core, core tenet to Christianity. So what are, what are some main ideas of Buddhism? Like what is the religion based around? It's uh, centered around the search for enlightenment. Mm -hmm. um, there's ideas of karma and rebirth. Yeah, so it's a religion that believes in reincarnation, right? Yeah. There's the idea of this cycle of death and rebirth and suffering, like life is suffering. 
you know, and the goal is to escape that circle and reach nirvana and enlightenment, right? Yeah, get above your suffering. Yeah. So the Buddha, the original Buddha, the idea is that he managed to escape that system. He became enlightened and his teachings help us mere mortals uh, do the same thing. Yeah, if you become enlightened, you become a Buddha. Right. Uh, they're also bodhisattvas. You know what those guys are? I'm not sure what the distinction is. So bodhisattvas are apparently people who can reach enlightenment, like they know how to get there, but they hold themselves back basically to help other people get there. That's so fascinating. Yeah, and there you'll see statues all over Japan of different bodhisattvas. Like there are a bunch of you know famous ones. Okay. Pretty pretty interesting. So like you said, Buddhism started in the 4th to 6th century BC, somewhere around there. Yep. Uh, but didn't make it to Japan for quite a while, right? Yeah, not until maybe a thousand years or more later. Yeah, I read somewhere around the 6th century. So that's Buddhism in a nutshell. So Buddhism has got the temples and Shinto has the shrine. So what is Shinto? Shinto is a native Japanese religion based on animism, where they worship deities. Deities can be ancestors, or they can be physical geography features, like a mountain or a lake or an ocean. Yeah, I mean, Shinto kind of grew organically in Japan, starting somewhere around maybe the 4th century BC. Nobody really has been able to pinpoint it's hard to know because it's evolved from earlier things so what point did it become shinto versus the ancient religions who knows right right so originally it was just kind of a collection of ideas about you know the world and it was almost like a loose sort of spirituality or like folk tales and that kind of thing and eventually that kind of got consolidated and morphed into you know what is now a fairly structured religion so there are no religious texts for Shinto. There's no Bible or Quran or anything for Shinto, but there were a couple books written in the 700s that were supposed to compile all of those myths and legends that, you know, the religion was built on. And uh, like you said, an animistic religion. So the idea is that everything, objects, places, animals, like everything possesses a spiritual essence. So like the world is saturated in holiness basically and when we're, when we're talking about like deities and when we get into shrines specifically more we're going to talk a lot about kami which is translated as gods or deities a lot of the time but you kind of have to leave your preconceptions about what those mean behind because the shinto idea of all of these kami is not at all like the christian god or or any other religion's idea of a creator it's not that kind of thing, right? Yeah. If you're going to try to compare animism towards any sort of monotheistic religion, it's just not going to equate when you're talking about the gods mm -hmm. versus the god. Right. Kami, like I said, is a lot of times translated as god or a deity, but I think it might be closer to call it like a spirit. Yeah. Like, there, there are kami all over the place, and it's not like there's one kami that's kind of the god of all the kami or anything. And it's not like they're all even really gods. Like, they're not omniscient and 
involved in everybody's daily lives. Yeah, they all have some sort of spiritual power, but they're not all powerful or they didn't create the world. They're just spiritual beings that live here with us. Yeah. And Kami could be, I mean, you, you think you said ancestors, right? Yeah. So they're not like, it's not like when you die, you know, you're, you're all of a sudden God. The belief is that you are a spirit that can potentially wander around and inhabit different objects too. That's a big part of it is that these Kami can move around and inhabit different things. Yeah. Shrines are built to allow a physical space for Kami to manifest so that humans can access them and right. pray to them and ask them for favors. Right. So let's hold on to that idea because I want to get more into that when we get to the section about how those ideas evolved. But I do want to say that the earliest shrines in Japan were based around sacred landmarks like the mountains and the sea. So those things even were inhabited by kami. That's the you know, one of the oldest ideas of Shinto. Yes. So talked about Buddhism and Shinto, and both of those are kind of the main religions in Japan today. Like they kind of meld together and overlap a lot in people's lives. Apparently, around 60% of Japanese people do not identify with an organized religion. However, at the same time, most Japanese people do go to shrines and temples, like regularly. And we're not talking like every every week or something, but on you know holidays, it's like a at certain times of the year. So how do, how does that work? How are people not religious but they also go to temples and shrines all the time? Maybe it's more of the uh, Western thing where I'm spiritual but I'm not religious. Well, I would guess that even a lot of Japanese people don't necessarily consider themselves spiritual, but religion in Japan is even just so baked into the culture that like people do these things and participate in these rituals just because that's what you do there, you know, like your family has been going to, yeah, you've been going to temples every year since you were a kid. Like it's just something you keep doing because it's a part of your life. It doesn't necessarily mean that religion is a huge part of your life that you're constantly thinking about and applying to your, you know, every everything yeah. you do. I don't I wouldn't say the average Japanese person is meditating, trying to reach enlightenment. Right, right. Yeah, I think it might make sense to compare it to like Americans that celebrate Christmas even if they don't necessarily consider this, themselves Christian, you know? It's just a holiday, it's a tr- tradition. It's more a cultural thing than a religious thing. Well, <laughs> yeah, careful put words into everyone else's mouth there. Yeah, For no, some people, I, didn't, I get yeah. what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So anyway, the point is, religion's more of a casual idea in Japan. Yeah. People don't go regularly to shrines or temples to worship. They're places you go for special events or uh, special times of the year. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's hard to make generalizations about an entire country of people, but right. But you know, that's generally more true of Japan than it is of the U.S. Is what we're saying. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's get into some history. I mean, we already talked a little bit about the history of the religions, but specifically shrines and temples. Let's get into that. Yeah, a shrines first arose from nature worship as I think you mentioned a little bit earlier, built around mountains or physical features like that. 
Um, people built temporary altars for ceremonies and festivals, like say to ensure a good harvest from the crop that's coming this year. Yeah. So kami were, like we said, got a mountain or a big tree or the ocean or whatever. Yeah. And you can't really encapsulate those things inside a building. So they would just build a shrine on, you know, near or on top of the mountain or whatever. But um, one of the earlier ideas in Shinto that emerged was something called a yorishiro, an object that basically acts as a lightning rod for the kami. So this would be, you know, other kami that aren't housed by a mountain or the sea or whatever. If you want to attract this kami and give them a physical space to occupy, you're going to have this yorishiro. And... Uh, like I said, it acts as a lightning rod. The kami is going to come inhabit that object. And then once it's occupied by the kami, it's called a shintai. So shrines in Japan were just little huts that were built to protect these objects that the kami lived in, basically. And, I mean, that tradition continues to today. Like every shrine that you go to in Japan is either going to be to one of these natural landmarks or to one of the objects, the yorishiro. I mean, that's even what you would call... The natural landmark that houses a kami, you know, the, the sea can be a yorishiro. A lot of other common types of yorishiro would be like swords, mirrors, a certain type of ritual staff, jewels, large rocks, sacred trees. I mean, kami, like we said, they can inhabit anything, so they'll use all sorts of things. In fact, uh, Paul, you've seen those little cat statues, right? At like a Japanese restaurant and the, the little arm... Goes up and down like it's beckoning you in. Yeah. Those are called maneki neko. And that is actually a yorishiro. Interesting. Yeah. That's meant to attract the kami of luck. Pretty cool, huh? Yeah, it is. Um, Mount Fuji itself is a yorishiro. Or a, I mean, since it's occupied by a kami, it's called a shintai. Yep. Yeah. So that was the very beginning of shrines. And like you said, they were temporary for the most part at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. So when Buddhism arrived in Japan, when was that? We About said. the 6th century. Yeah. Uh, so that kind of introduced the idea of permanent shrines when it brought you know, temples. Yeah. And many temple shrine complexes emerged where you'd have a shrine and a temple on the same grounds or near each other. And part of the idea for this was the temples would help the kami with their karmic problems. Yeah, because they believed that kami and spiritual beings have to deal with karma too, just like the rest of us. Yeah, it feels kind of weird to think about for me. Like it, it almost feels like uh, when missionaries come in and they're like, "Hey, you know that religion that you've been practicing for a really long time? You're kind of getting some stuff wrong. Let me let me tell you how it really works." <laughs> you know, it is an interesting melding of the two religions, though. Rather yeah. than just coming in and saying, Shinto's dumb, here's yeah. Buddhism. Like the two just merged right together. Right. Yeah, it is interesting because that isn't always how it happens in history. <laughs> so yeah, you got a Shinto shrine and a Buddhist temple and they're like in the same complex. And they would call them Jinguji, which translates to shrine temples, basically. And so at this period in Japanese history, there were very few shrines that didn't have a Buddhist temple. Like it was almost all temple shrines. Yeah. Mixed together. So things were going fine for uh, a millennium or so. <laughs> yeah. And uh, 
Buddhism got real serious in the 1600s. And I know in other episodes, we, we keep talking about the Tokugawa shogunate because they were a big deal and they brought a lot of change to Japan. So in the beginning of the 1600s, they came into power. And did we even ever say what the shogunate was? Yeah. Okay. Well, just to say it again, <laughs> the shogunate was basically a military dictatorship. Like before they came into power, there was a lot of fighting around Japan. Yeah. And they unified the country and brought peace. The real power behind the throne. Right. So when they came into power uh, in the 1600s, Christianity was starting to, to make its way into Japan. And the shogunate wasn't too happy about that. So what did they do to try to stamp out Christianity? They banned Christianity <laughs> and hunted down people if they uh, followed it. Yeah. They also basically endorsed Buddhism and forced everybody to affiliate themselves with a Buddhist temple. So, you know, whenever, whenever you're forcing people to subscribe to a religion, people are Oh, they're going to be super into it then, right? <laughs> I feel like that's not usually what happens. <laughs> um, a little yeah. bit of resistance. Yeah, in this case, I mean, there were a lot of people that were, you know, not happy about that. And not only just because they had to, you know, pretend that they believed in this religion that they might not necessarily believe in, but also because they had to give money to the temple to, to support it and make sure it stayed around. And, I mean, there were so many temples in Japan at the time that a single temple would have to be supported by not all that many people. So they're basically taking a lot of money from people. Yeah, and if you were a member of that temple, they would just take what they needed and there wasn't a lot you could do about it. Yeah, and if you didn't want to pay them, I mean, they had the power to blackmail you. Like, if you weren't a real believer, they, they knew that probably. And if you weren't paying them, they definitely knew that. And they could just go to the shogunate and be like, hey, these guys, I don't know. I think they might be actual Christians, so you might want to go take a look at, at them. Yeah. Yeah, kind of scary. Um. But I know, as we've mentioned, we've mentioned this before in other episodes as well. In 1868, that was the beginning of the Meiji Restoration when the uh, emperor was restored to power, the end of the Tokugawa shogunate. And <clears throat> when that happened, the new administration implemented something called the Shinbutsu Hanzenrei, uh, which is known in English as the Kami and Buddha's Separation Order. So you can probably figure yeah. out what that did just by the name of it. What did that do, Paul? All temples had to remove any Shinto shrines, and any shrines had to remove all their Buddhist figures, and the uh, temples and shrines had to be separated. Before then, shrines were often run by the Buddhist clergy at the temple. And now shrines had to be separated and run by separate shrine priest. So this whole thing triggered pretty violent backlash against Buddhism because, you know, those people that uh, weren't so happy f about Buddhism from the beginning, you know, their, their anger had yeah. been building up over decades. Any religion centuries. gets too powerful and too rich, there's going to be a few resentful people. A few resentful people. There were riots, man. <laughs> yeah. It was a tough time to be a to be a monk, I think. Yeah. I mean, tens of thousands of temples were destroyed in just, you know, a matter of a few years. Yeah. 
I think back on that and I'm like, man, that's a shame. All that history, all that architecture. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like they had so many temples, it was probably weighing the economy down. It probably wasn't sustainable to keep all these temples up to date and operational all the way to the modern day. Yeah. So it was actually maybe a correction of sorts. Sure, but the way they went about it, right? They probably could have done it without, you know, burning down places and killing people. And the order was initially popular, like you said, with the backlash to Buddhism, but it eventually stalled out. And even today, most temples still have a small shrine in them, and most shrines still have Buddhist figures. So uh, that brings us to about the modern day, I think. Yeah. So let's talk about what these things are like these days. You want to start with temples? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So uh, one easy way to identify a temple, if you're not sure if what you're looking at is a temple or a shrine, a lot of times you can tell by the name. Temple names will usually end with G or Dera, D-E-R-A, or Tera, T-E-R-A, or in, I-N. A lot of times you'll see like the name of the temple and then a dash and then one of those suffixes. That can kind of clue you in that it's a Buddhist temple. Yes. Not a shrine. And what if it's a shrine? Shrines, on the other hand, there, well, there are tons of different endings to those. Like it's, you'll see a lot of different ones and there, there's a longer list for those, but a few of the, the more common ones that you'll see are Jinja, Jingu, Taisha, and these all mean different things. Like, there are different types of shrines, too. There are certain types of shrines that are for kami, that are ancestors of the royal family, that kind of thing. Anyway, back to temples. Yeah. So, what are you going to see when you first walk up to a temple in Japan? Uh, you would probably see the gate that is the entrance. Rather than the tori, which is two poles with another pole or two across the top, probably slanted in a cool way. The gate to a Buddhist temple is going to be a structure that has a roof over it and an upper floor, even though the upper floor is usually not usable and there's nothing up there. Okay. So you're going to walk in and you could see all sorts of different things, really. I mean, temples can be all different shapes and sizes. They could have different halls, a bunch of different buildings. Uh, there might be a pagoda. You might see some bells that they're going to ring for special occasions. But the most important building is something called the Honzon, which is uh, for the safekeeping of sacred objects. Kind of like, you could kind of compare it to, for shrines, we're going to see that they have the building where they keep the, uh, the Shintai, the object inhabited by the kami. Yeah, those are the most sacred buildings. It's like the most important building of the temple. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's going to be somewhere where you're going to see a bunch of people praying at the temple mm-hmm. in front of an altar that might have some statues, probably a Buddha. And uh, how, how do you pray at a shrine? Or, sorry, a temple. How do, you, how do you pray at a temple? Well, there are things you do. One of the things I thought was interesting is that at temples you can light incense oh, yeah. as part of your prayer because the scent is food for the Buddha. Mm. It's also purifying, right? You can use it to uh, cure what ails you. Yeah, hopefully. So how, um, do you, how do you light some incense? 
You light your incense yourself. If you light your incense off of other someone else's incense, you're taking on their sins. That's so that's not, a big no-no. Yeah. You don't know what that person's done or where they've been. You got to be careful. Yeah. And you don't want to blow out your incense either once you light it. You want to shake it and you know get that flame off of there just by waving it through the air, right? Yeah. So you're going to light your incense and uh, you are going to want to bow and make an offering of money. Mm-hmm. Five yen is a popular choice. Something lucky about the yep. number five. Just toss a coin on in. Um, and then you put your hands together, but don't clap. Right. And make your prayer or give your thanks and then bow again. Yep. So also at temples, a lot of times there are buildings that you can go into. You might have a tatami room to walk around. They might have some altars inside that you can pray to. And one good thing to remember, if you are going to go into one of those buildings, you're going to be taking off your shoes. Yep. Uh, so there's going to be, you know, a little place for you to take off your shoes and stick them in a little cubby, and uh, they'll stay there until you come back. Another thing to remember is it's uh, kind of rude to take pictures of altars or idols. You know, this this is a religious place. You wouldn't want somebody walking into a Christian church and running up to the altar snapping a bunch of pictures, right? Yeah, that'd be a little rude. Yeah. Another thing you might see at a temple are monks. Because these are, I mean, monasteries, basically. Yep. Yep, monks will live there. And a lot of different sizes of temples. Some temples might only have one monk that takes care of it. Some temples might have a bunch of them. Mm-hmm. What else is common to see at a temple, Paul? Um, Gardens. You see Japanese gardens. You can see Zen gardens if you're at the right temple. And they are... Beautiful. I've never seen a garden at a temple that didn't blow me away. I mean, they put a lot of care into making these places super peaceful, serene, and beautiful. Yeah, you come across it and you just stop. And it's easy to just stand there for 10, 15 minutes just looking at it, just admiring the way everything's coming together. Yeah. Yeah, they bring in a lot of different elements. You got a lot of moss, which mm-hmm. I love. Yeah. Oh, one of my favorite temples has this little garden that's just, I mean, it's pretty small, but the ground is just completely covered in moss. Like you can't walk on it or anything, so it's perfectly kept. Yeah, and a Japanese garden is often going to have a little pond, maybe a stream with an arched bridge over it. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to have rocks and trees. Yep, yep. And water and stone, I mean, you'll almost always see those because the idea of Japanese gardens is that they're these little analogs of bigger natural phenomenon. Like when you see water, that's representative of the ocean, the sea. And when you see rocks, that's representative of big mountains. So it's like you can experience the whole of nature's beauty just in this little garden. Yeah. And if it's a Japanese garden, you can often walk through it. The Zen Mm -hmm. gardens, uh, you can't walk through. Yeah. So for Zen gardens, it is going to be arranged rocks and moss and prune trees and bushes. Mm-hmm. And they use sand and gravel that's raked to simulate like ripples in the water rather than actually having the whole thing filled with water. Yeah. And uh, the temple or the Zen gardens 
are meant to be looked at usually from just one angle. So there's one angle where they line up everything to give it that perfect look that they're trying to go for. Hmm. Nice. Also, the Zen gardens are designed to imitate the essence of nature, but not necessarily look exactly like it. Hmm. And they're supposed to aid in the meditation about trying to find the true meaning of life. Cool. Yeah. One thing I remember about Zen temples specifically is they have a lot of, they incorporate a lot of geometric shapes. Like I remember seeing one where it was almost like a checkerboard of stone and moss, like just all these little squares. Or you'll see, yeah. you know, they use the raked gravel to make all sorts of cool shapes. They'll make like ripples around the stones that are resting there and stuff. Really, really cool looking places. Yeah. Just with the different ways they rake the garden can make that one stone sitting there. It can make it feel different based on how like the waves are going out from around it and stuff. Mm -hmm. It's really cool. Mm -hmm. Definitely worth checking out um, some of the temples with some of the better gardens. Yeah, for sure. Another thing that is very common at temples is a little guy called Jizo. Do you know Jizo, Paul? Have you met Jizo? No. I bet you have. I bet you have. Probably. I bet you just didn't know his name. You I didn't... just didn't stop to introduce myself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Jizo is one of the four main bodhisattva of Mahayana Buddhism. Remember, I, I talked about what a bodhisattva is, right? Yeah. He stays behind to, to help help people get real, to nirvana. He's a real bro. Yeah, totally. And Jizo, he's adorable, man. You'll see, okay, tell me if you remember seeing this. There are going to be these little statues of this friendly little guy. At first glance, you might think, oh, it's just a little Buddha, right? But he's not as big as Buddha. And uh, if you look close, he doesn't look quite like Buddha. A lot of times he has a very like childish face. A lot of times you'll see him decorated with uh, little knit hats or bibs. Huh? Does that ring a bell at all? Yeah. A lot of times you won't even see like an actual statue. Sometimes they're just rocks, but they'll have bibs on them, mm. right? And uh, Jizo is the protector of children and dead children, sadly. He never stops. He never gives up. Yeah. Yeah. He's helping out the aborted fetuses, uh, you know, children that have died for whatever reason, unborn children. All that. Okay. And a lot of other things. Okay. I mean, you know, in Buddhism, all these ideas kind of mesh together and mean a lot of different things to different people. So there's a lot of stuff that's ascribed to Jizo, but um, just look around. You'll find him there. And he's usually really cute <laughs> and little. And he's got a cute little hat on. And sometimes you'll see just tons of them. Like I remember at a couple temples, there are just like hundreds of Jizo, like just in, in a little army. Pretty cool. Interesting. Yeah, so Jizo's fun. Um, another thing that you'll see at temples that you will not see at shrines are cemeteries. Yeah, yeah. There are no cemeteries and shrines. Yeah. And actually, on my next trip, I'm going to be spending some time in Koyasan. There's a really famous, really beautiful cemetery there. Um, and Koyasan is a town of just a bunch of Buddhist temples. So, Do you yeah. know what protocol is on visiting a Buddhist cemetery? Protocol, like... Like, can you just, like, walk through it and take pictures? You can. Um, I'm not sure if it's supposed to be rude to take pictures, but I don't think so, because there are tons of pictures of that famous cemetery in okay. Koyasan. Okay, 
Yeah, it does seem like something that could potentially be kind of rude. Yeah, I'm not sure. Every culture views that differently. Yeah. I remember my brother taking a bunch of pictures of a cemetery, and I felt a little awkward about it. Yeah. But I didn't know, yeah. you know. It's like, you know, you're taking pictures of people's graves, dude. Like, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. No, I'm pretty sure it's acceptable. And if it's not, I will go back and edit this part out. <laughs> so if you hear this, it's acceptable. Go for it. <laughs> um. So I think I mentioned briefly a bell. A lot of temples will have a bell, like a big iron bell, right? Yeah. Yeah. You don't get to just run up and ring that whenever you want, though. Yeah. No ringing this bell. Yeah. Apparently on New Year's, though, most temples will allow anybody to just come up and ring the bell. That's fun. So, yeah. There'll probably be a big line, though, because that's the one time a year everybody's like, I want to ring that bell. Yeah. Get it while you can. Yeah. All right. I got one more thing that's common at temples. You know what it is, Paul? What's that? Omikuji. And what's Omikuji? Omikuji is a, a Japanese method of fortune telling. So I know, I know you've seen this before. Oh, yeah. You got to get your fortune at the temple. Yeah. Tell us how that works. Well, you pay a small fee and you get a fortune. Yeah. And this can come in different forms at different shrines. You know, they'll, they'll do it differently depending on where you are. But one of the more common ones is... You'll walk up to a place. There'll be a big sign that says Omikuji. There might be a Japan or a English sign that says fortune telling. And what you're going to see is these boxes. And there might be a slot where you can put money, usually about 100 yen. You can just take a 100 yen coin, slip it into this slot, and then you pick up one of these boxes, you shake it. You shake it. And you keep shaking it. And then there's going to be, there's a little hole in the box and eventually a little stick is going to come out of that hole. And on that stick, there's going to be a number. These numbers are usually in Japanese, so you're just going to have to match up the the symbol with the symbol on these drawers that will be next to these boxes. And when you find the corresponding drawer, you open that drawer and you pull out the top fortune. And that's your fortune. And your fortune can be anywhere from a great blessing to a great curse. Curse is bad. You You don't want a big curse. There are more blessings than curses, though, so that's nice. But if you do get a bad curse, what do you do? How do you make sure that isn't going to destroy your life? There's a place at the temple where you can tie it up and leave it behind. Yeah. Sometimes it's on a, a tree. You might see trees just covered in bad fortunes. Or sometimes they'll have like these little uh, racks, almost like a bicycle rack, but turned over. So the, <laughs> the rods are horizontal and you can tie stuff onto them. You can also, if you get a good fortune, you can apparently tie it there for greater effect. So basically, whatever fortune you get, you can tie it there. Or you can keep your, your good fortune for luck and a nice little souvenir. Yeah. All right, let's move on to shrines. I feel like at shrines, you don't have to pay as often as at temples, right? Yeah. Yeah, that sounds right from what I remember. And one big thing you can look for to identify shrine versus a temple is the Tori gate. Yeah. It's going to be a large gate that uh, marks the boundary between the ordinary world and the sacred ground of the shrines. Right. And before you pass through it, etiquette says you're supposed to bow. Mm-hmm. Got to show some respect before you cross into the sacred world. Yep. Another thing to remember is a lot of times when you walk through that gate, you're going to see kind of a path down the very center of that gate, like leading from there to the actual shrine. 
And you might be tempted to walk right there, because it looks like it's, you know, the place to walk, right? Why walk on the side of the path when you can walk down the middle? Because you've got to leave room for the kami, because they use the path too. Exactly. That is for the kami walk. So stick to the side. And one of the first things you're going to see when you get inside that shrine is something called a chozuya. Is that the purification basin? It sure is. And you'll see these at temples once in a while too, but they're more common at shrines. So how do you properly purify yourself, Paul? So when you're at the purification basin, there's going to be some ladles. You're going to pick one up with your right hand and you're going to fill it with the running water. And then you're going to pour a little bit of water onto your left hand to clean it. And then you switch the ladle over and pour a little bit onto your right hand to clean it. And then you will rinse your mouth with water cupped in your left hand and uh, spit the water out. And then you hold the ladle upright so that the last drops wash the handle. And then you replace the ladle. And you are purified. Right. That's a good feeling. Nice to be pure. Yeah. And uh, you want to make sure that the water that's coming out of your mouth and off your hands doesn't go back into the basin. Yeah. You know? yeah. You're, you're washing off all this bad stuff. You don't want to get it into the stuff that other people are using to purify themselves. That, that's just... Yeah, don't, don't share your sins with other people. <laughs> right. But you know, if you screw up, no, nobody's going to yell at you. A lot of Japanese people apparently don't know the official etiquette rules at these places. Yeah, there's no one there policing it. Yeah. A lot of people will walk by without even doing it. Right. Um, especially right. if you're there not to pray. Yeah. So, you know, don't worry about it too much. I mean, it's nice to try to uh, be polite, show respect for the, uh, yeah. the local customs. But If there's other people there, just watch how they're doing it. Mm-hmm. And if there's no one there, then no one's going to care if you do it slightly wrong. Yep. All right. So you're pure. Good job. Now you're going to walk into, you know, the shrine area. Mm-hmm. And one thing you're going to see, the most important part of the shrine is something called the Honden. And that is the building that houses the Shintai, which you may recall is the object that Kami is living in. So this building, you're, you're not even usually going to be able to go up to it. Like it might be way in the back, fenced off. It's just that special, that Shintai. They don't want anybody messing with it. Yeah. So this building is only entered by priests and only on like certain times of the year for special rituals. Um, but the Shintai may be removed for Matsuri. What's a Matsuri? A festival. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. What they do is they bring out the Shintai they put it in a little portable shrine, and then they parade it through the streets. So all the people can be like, hey, that's our Kami. He's right there. Sounds awesome. like a good time. Yeah. Like having a rock star walking through the crowd. <laughs> yeah. But uh, as we mentioned earlier, some shrines don't have a Shintai. The Kami might be you know, in a mountain or a tree or something, in which case they will not have the Honden, of course. Um, so another important building that you'll see is the offering hall. Which, surprise, that's where you make offerings and yes. pray. How, yep. does, how does that work? Well, you will walk up and you will drop money into the worship box for purification. It cleanses your sins and impurities. Um, and then you will ring the bell and the sound summons the gods and dispels evil. You know, got to get their attention. You don't want to be praying while you know the gods are off playing chess or something. And they're like, wait, did I hear somebody praying back? Oh, he's... He's not important. You got to make sure they know. 
yeah. you're about to ask them. Yeah. And then once you have their attention, you bow twice, and then you clap twice, and then you can offer thanks and pray, and then bow once again. Yep. Three bows total. And then uh, you're good to move on. Yeah. And uh, there might be omikuji here too, the fortune telling. So look for that. That's always a good time. Um, there's also something you can buy called Emma, which are these little wooden plates where you can write wishes and, you know, hope that the kami can make your wishes come true. Yeah. It's the sort of thing like a lot of school kids do where they'll go to a shrine uh, that's uh, worshiping a deity of education or learning and they'll write their names on an Emma and the name of the school they want to get into mm-hmm. and then hang it up on the grounds for good luck. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like a lot of the prayers and wishes that happen at temples and shrines are about school. <laughs> School's a big thing in Japan. It's a big thing culturally. It's an important part of their lives. Yeah, and entrance, entrance exams are difficult and can determine a lot of your yeah. future. It's so. all about which school you get into. Yeah. Um, um, also at shrines, they sell some things for you. Yeah, they do. You can buy all sorts of stuff. Oh, I didn't mention that at temples. They also have stuff at temples that you yes. can buy. What kind of things can you buy? Um, at shrines, they've got amulets and tablets, usually with the name of the shrine or its deity on them. Um, if it's an amulet, you might like bring it with you every day, put it on your backpack or carry it in your wallet. Um, if it's a big tablet, you'd probably display it at your home. What can you get uh, at temples? Um, you know, I think temples and shrines sell a lot of similar types of things, but uh, some common things are bracelets. They're, they're like Buddhist bracelets with, with the beads on them. You've probably seen those around. Mm-hmm. Um, you can get a lot of good luck charms. I mean, all sorts of little things. They're just these little, are those the kind of amulet things you were talking about? Yeah, I think they sell similar things at temples, little good luck charms. Yeah, yeah and I mean, they, they have them very, for very specific purposes. You can get ones that are for safe transportation. If you're a bad driver and you're like, oh, I don't want to get killed in my car because I'm a terrible driver, you can get a charm to help out with that. If, yeah. uh, if you're worried about your grades, you can get a charm for that. If you're worried about money, a lot of people are worried about money, and you can get a charm for that. No mm-hmm. problem. Yeah, any common problem, they've got a charm for it. Yeah, totally. Um, there's one other thing I wanted to mention that you can buy at temples and shrines called Goshuincho. So Goshuincho is a little booklet, basically, and you buy it, you open it up, and there's all blank pages, and you're like, what the heck? What a ripoff. These, these pages are all blank. But the point is, you have this booklet, and then every shrine or temple you visit, you can go, there's usually like a little booth somewhere, and you, you may need to pay a little bit, but there's going to be a monk or you know just an employee there that can do some beautiful calligraphy on one of the pages and put a little insignia for that specific shrine or temple. And then they can put the date and uh, kind of just like a little souvenir book. You can keep track of all of the places you've been. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It's like real life Pokemon. <laughs> yeah. Gotta, gotta catch, catch every all. shrine and temple in Japan. Exactly. So Paul, you got anything else about shrines? No, I think that's a pretty good basic overview. Cool. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, I just had one last fun fact I wanted to share. Oh yeah? Did you know that about a third of all the shrines in Japan, and what did we say? There were 80, 100,000 shrines. So about 
30,000 of those are Inari shrines. I did see that, yeah. Yeah, so Inari, you may have heard of Fushimi Inari. It's one of the most famous shrines in Kyoto. One of the famous shrines, most famous shrines in Japan, yeah. probably. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a pretty famous one. You've probably seen pictures of the red gates going up the mountain. There are just tons of these red gates. Anyway, um, so shrines can belong to like networks. And the way that that works, you might think, well, if there's only one Inari, like Inari is the name of the kami that's enshrined in an Inari shrine. And you might think, why do they have all these different shrines? Because there's only one kami, right? Well, there's this ritual that they can do where a kami can be divided and housed in multiple shintai. Yeah, and that can work to start new temples, but they also do that for objects you could keep in your home too sometimes. Mm. So at first it might seem mean, like you're splitting this kami in half. I mean, that's, that's like Voldemort or something, you know, splitting his soul into a bunch of pieces. But what I read is it's, it's not as if the main shrine only has a piece of the kami now. It's more like all these other shrines are like little flames lit off of the flame of the main shrine. Okay. Yeah. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, so Inari, you know, as a third of the shrines are Inari, that's the biggest network. But there are a bunch of other smaller networks of, yeah. you know, and different... And Fushimi Inari is the head shrine of that right. category. Right. All right. Is that it? For our episode. I think that's it. All right. I guess that's it for today. If you want to reach us on the web, you can check out our website at sightseeingjapanpodcast.com. And if you want to help us out, if you liked the episode, it would be awesome if you could rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you found the podcast. That would be really nice. Yeah, definitely. And what are we talking about next week? Mount Fuji. Sweet. Mount Fuji is a big deal. Big mountain, big deal. Super famous in Japan. Yeah, it should be uh, fun. Yeah. You'll learn about, you know, its significance in Japanese history. Talk about climbing it these days. Yeah. That'd be pretty fun. I got to do that eventually. Right. That should be a good time. And now we will leave you with a little audio clip of one of my favorite temples. It's a little tiny temple in Kyoto called Gyoji. And it's really, it's kind of hidden back in Arashiyama, and uh, it's just beautiful and serene. And uh, you're going to hear water running because there's a little bamboo fountain where water comes out into this bucket. So that's that's a lot of what you'll hear. But you'll also hear, uh, you know, some birds and uh, just... Cool. Anyway, anyway, okay, here, here you go. Listen to this, and we'll see you next time.